Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in the book of Revelation to chapter 2. We'll read the final chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Do you hear an echo of, of Exodus 20 in that? The covenant he made with his people at the beginning is the covenant that is there at the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The idea that we as Christians have a special interest in history, all of history, because we believe that this is our Father's world. He made it, and he uh, rules it, reigns over it, is at work within it, and he will culminate all things. History didn't begin, and the universe didn't begin in an accident. It began with a person and a purpose. It will end with a person. The climactic fact in the book of Revelation is not what will happen, but who will come, who will be there at the end and it is Christ. Now, it's not always hard to see that this is our Father's world. Listen to the news this morning. But rather, we find comfort in the fact that there is a story within the story that uh, gives meaning to the whole. And it is that story within the story that's believed by a remnant within the larger whole that makes it make sense for us. And that story... History generally is the story of creation. We believe in the doctrine of creation, that God made it all, but that something happened and so it went wrong. So we not only believe that he made it, but we also believe that God is working to redeem it. And so that inner story is a story of redemption, God's action in history to save what we have blighted and cursed. We began with Abraham. Because when God started with man, Adam, and thought in terms of the whole, it failed. And so from all righteous, it moved to a none righteous. When he began again with Noah, it was with the whole. And it was from the whole being right to all being unright. So he said, we'll turn that process around. And we'll start with a part instead of the whole. And so he started with a man and a family which then in Exodus, as we read yesterday, or the day before, became a people, a nation. We said that people was a special treasure to God. You can understand why. Because all of his purposes are tied up with you. <laughs> now, we don't want that load on us. <laughs> and so we recoil from it in many ways. But uh, he has no other design except through his body to redeem the world. Did you notice the final invitation in the Word of God is, the Spirit and the Bride say come. It is not the Spirit alone, but it is the Spirit and the Bride say come. It's that law of the second witness that you have in the Old Testament. You couldn't convict a person of a crime if you didn't have two witnesses. It is not enough that God witnesses. There has to be a human, a creaturely witness, a witness within the creation to match, to let us know that this creation belongs to him and he belongs to these. So we are a special treasure. Read Jesus' treatment of his own disciples and his relationship to them. They were incredibly precious to him. But they are a people that he called not just for themselves, he called them for the larger whole. And so we are to be a priestly people. And in order to be that, we have to be holy. That word is his word. Read the Old Testament. The etymology gets secondary because you ultimately have to define holy in terms of Yahweh. 
Whatever he is, that's what it is. And he says, if we're to represent him, we have to be like him. We're not going to be like him in our strength. We can only be like him. It took a cross to make us that way. But that's the purpose of the cross, so that there can be some similarity between who we are and the witness that we give to the world. And it is not our doing, it is his doing. We represent him and we need to be like him. Now, it's interesting that uh, there needs to be some similarity between you and me and the one we represent. I'm never going to be Christ. But there is something about the grace of Christ that he can put his, what in me? He can put his spirit in me. And if it's the spirit that motivated and was the dynamic in Christ's life, somewhere there's got to be, if not some similarity, there's got to be an absence of contradiction. And that's what he wants in his people. So that the world has some chance to know Christ. And we are the way. Now, we said these things come together and they're illustrated in Isaiah. The three that he, God loved him. He was in the temple. He belonged to Yahweh. He was a part of the people of God. But there was an impurity in him. He was not whole. And when God purged him, then the second thing, the priestly part came in. And he became the voice who gave the best picture of Christ that is given anywhere in the word of God. But what did it come out of? It came out of that purging that came in Isaiah's life when the seraphim took the, the coal of fire and placed it on him. So the key to the salvation of the world that's around us rests in you and me. And rests in those that are the bride of Christ. Now, we said we saw that in Isaiah 52 where Zion, that name that is the name for the city of God, which is a symbol for the people of God, they now are not what they're supposed to be. And they are asleep, they're defiled, they're bound by their sin, they are careless and forgetful of how God has worked within them, so that they need, so that the people of God need somebody to come and say, did you know the Lord reigns, Yahweh reigns? And Jerusalem was in ruins, and the Lord had departed. And he says, I want to come back. I want to come back to my people. I want to come back to Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting when the holy city isn't holy? And isn't it interesting when the city of God is no longer, God is no longer present in it? And he says, but when I come back, he said, the glory will come back. And he says, and when that comes, I will be able to lay bare my holy arm in the sight of all the nations. But the key to Yahweh being able to lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations is for him to come back to the heart of his people. And so the greatest need in the world is for, the revi for revival, renewal within the body of Christ, within the church. And then all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. It's interesting. We are integrally related to the purposes, redemptive purposes of God. So the greatest need in the world starts with you and with me for us to be filled with the very fullness of God. But now that if we have received, many of us have knelt here at this altar and we have sensed God coming to us. Now today we leave. We separate from each other. And we go.
is like in Pentecost, when they came together and God met them and then they scattered across the earth. And everywhere they went, Christ had an opportunity to spread his witness. And so I don't know where you come from or where you're going, but Christ wants you to be the instrument through which he can witness, show his arm and show himself to that place where you go and the people uh, with whom you will be. Now, it's not easy. It's a battle. But uh, it's not an impossible task. And we have an amazing amount of things working in our favor. So oftentimes we look at the problems and they're painful to us and we become aware of our pain and we forget how much there is that's on our side and that's to our advantage. And the first of these is the fact that it's his creation. Now, as we said, it doesn't always look that way. One of the most uh, poignant stories I ever heard came from Bob Pierce, who founded World Vision. You remember that when the war was going on in Korea, he wanted to get into Korea, and he was an evangelist, that's what he was, with a passion for Christ. And he couldn't get in, of course, as a missionary, because Korea was in total chaos. So he went to the U.S. military and presented himself as a journalist. And so he went in with a camera and took pictures and did an amazing amount of good journalistic work in that. But he said, uh, he told the story, I do not know whether it happened to him or whether it's one that he picked up. When Seoul was under bombardment and the war was right in the middle, it was the focal point of the fighting. He said, uh, somebody, I don't know whether it was Bob or not, was walking down through one of those war-torn streets you know, any moment could have been destroyed when he heard a little voice and a voice was singing and a voice was singing, this is my father's world. Oh, rest me in the thought. And so he chased down to find out where that voice came from. And he found in the, a doorway into a store, into a building where there was an inset and uh, an entryway, and then the door. He found a little boy with his smaller brother pinned between his arms against that door. He was holding the little boy so the little boy, his little brother could not run into the street. And he was holding him there with his arms around him, and he was singing quietly to him, This is my father's world. Oh, rest me in the thought. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a brutal world, but it's still his. He made it. And there are evidences all around us that he made it. It is compatible with him. And if you look hard enough, you'll find the traces of the fact that he made it. Now, let me illustrate that in a way that some of you have heard me develop more extensively, but let me refer to it. I remember when somewhere or other I was intrigued by the question of how do you how do you communicate the gospel across cultures? How do you uh, go from one culture to another when your language uh, may not be expressed to you? Know, you may not have the vocabulary, the means, and sometimes your concepts don't fit the world to which you go. So how do you how do you communicate the gospel across cultures? You know, if you want to, you can make a, you can make an argument that would make it seem almost impossible, but it's been done. As I thought about that, I thought, 
Well, the most interesting cross-cultural jump that ever occurred was when Jesus came from heaven to, to Judea, to Jerusalem, to Palestine. The one who had lived eternally in the bosom of the Father and the only language, I don't know whether this is correct or not, I started to say the only language he knew, the only language with which he had lived had been heaven's language. And now he's down in Nazareth and Capernaum. He now is not in a world of of the eternal world, he's in a world of time. Now, how does he communicate the gospel? So I picked up the gospel of John and ran through it just to see how he did it. Now, I'm slow. So it was the fourth chapter before I even began to catch on. But you remember the woman at the well? He looked at her and said, would you give me some water to drink? And she said, this is most unusual. You're a Jew. If you drink water out of my bucket, you've defiled yourself. He looked at her and said, well, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. You drink this, you've got to come back tomorrow and get more. But I've got a water to give you. If you ever get it, you'll never thirst again. She said, mister, you don't even have a bucket. He said, well, you don't need a bucket for the kind I got. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but my mind works this way. I used to teach a little grammar, so I thought, for heaven's sakes, there's water with a little W, and then there's water with a capital W. <laughs> and one of them takes care of the body, and the other one takes care of the soul. I got to the sixth chapter, and you remember he fed the multitude, the 5,000. And they chased him down the next day and said, what would you leave for? We wanted to crown you king. And he said, well, I left because you didn't see. All you saw was the bread that you ate, and now you're hungry again. But I came to give you another kind of bread. I came to give you a bread so that if you eat it, you will never hunger again. That bread is my flesh. And I realized that bread with a little b and is bread with a capital B. I got to chapter 8 and I found his light with a little L and his light with a capital L. I got to chapter 10 and he said, I'm the door. I'd be interested in how many doors you've already walked through today. Did you know that there's a case can be made that every door that you've already walked through is a witness to Christ? You can't get through one without it being a witness. What is a door? It's a way to get from where you are to where you need to be. I got to chapter 14 and he said, I'm the road, the aisle, the corridor, the path, the interstate, whatever you want to use. Now, I found this amazing compatibility between the world that we live in and the world Jesus wants to tell us about. And the needs at this level and the eternal needs that are represented within us. Now, as I got that far, I thought, for heaven's sakes, he obviously found this world incredibly satisfactory for his pedagogical needs. Now, I've decided a long time ago that the one who created the universe is a third grade school teacher. I wish I knew how to preach it. If I could, I'd preach a sermon on God, the third grade school teacher. Because what is a third grade school teacher? Third grade school teacher is the absolute genius at object lessons. 
And uh, you know what I'm talking about. Well, uh, I thought, for heaven's sakes, he found the world, the universe, very satisfactory for his pedagogical needs. I thought, you know, it's almost as if it were made for him. And I laughed and thought, that's interesting, he made it. Did he make it pedagogically? Did he make it so nobody would miss? There is a compatibility between the creator and his creation and the creator's ways. Though we're fallen, perverted, twisted, behind the twistedness and in it, if we look deeply enough, we'll see his, hand, his fingerprints. The evidence is this world he made. Now, as I thought of that, I realized that Jesus went from here to there. He'd take water and move to water with a capital W. He'd take bread and move to the other. He'd do it this way. But you know, there are two ways that, two metaphors that he used that work the other way. There are two metaphors that instead of moving from time to eternity, these move from eternity to time. Now, I was an old man before I ever thought of that, but I will never think the same again. And do you know what those two metaphors are? One of them is the family, and the other is marriage. You see, I always thought of the first family as Adam and Eve's until I read the Gospel of John about the 68th time. And I realized that the first family was in the Trinity. In the bosom of eternity, before there was anything but God, when God waked up in the morning, one member of the Trinity didn't say, Morning God, or Hello Lord, or Savior, but he said Father. And another one said Son. I'm not interested in the sex part of that. I think this transcends all of that. Our human sexuality is a particularistic expression of something eternal in the nature of the deity. And in the female, there's something that isn't in the male. In the male, there's something that isn't in the female. But whatever is in the two of them, all of it is a shadow of something in the very nature of the deity. He made us in his own image. And you've got to have us together to get that image. But nevertheless, I suddenly thought, isn't it interesting that every person I've ever met has a father? Is the reason that every person I've ever met has a father is because God wants to Everybody to know, not only have not only a father with a little f, but know the father with a capital F. So that our very sociology has theological overtones to it. Now, the second one that transcends time, it's not written in the nature of the deity, but it is in the eternal purposes of God. And that's our sexuality. Because, you see, the last words you get in the New Testament is about a bride. And how did she become the bride? Through the blood of the Lamb slain from before the foundations of the world. Because when God created you and me, he had Calvary in mind. And why did he do that? So he could have a bride for his son. Now, uh, it's interesting. Everybody I've ever met is either male or female. And the one thing I know about maleness and femaleness is it means that whichever one you are, you're not all there. 
and you are made to find completion in another. And the interesting thing is nobody can give life to somebody else alone. So he has written into our beings witnesses as to his purposes. And so we talk about the new birth. The world that we live in is metaphorical, analogical to the world that you can't see. So when the message comes, it's not an alien word. When the word of God comes, it is not an alien word. There is something within our being that says, this fits. Now, uh, let me say, as I thought about that, I thought, could it be that there's something that can be taught in these two eternal metaphors that work in reverse that can't be learned anywhere else. And I'm convinced it is. You see, it's only in the family that you see law and love in the same people. Now, in shorthand, let me say, the family is the only place in the world that you see Sinai and Calvary sit in the same chairs. First person to ever say no to you is your parent. And your mother went into the valley of the shadow of death to give you life, and your father works a 40-hour week so you can live. Both live their lives so you can live. Now, one of the hardest things for people to believe is that you can put Sinai and Calvary together and that the same God spoke both. But the scripture says that's true. He is truth. And because he's truth, he won't bend. Not one ounce of give in him on the truth. Do you know why? Because he loves us. Because when you depart from truth, you go into illusion. So he will not bend on truth. And the wages of sin is death. And when you break the moral law, you pay a price. doesn't matter who you are, you pay a price. But he's love. And he says, I'll take the price, the consequences. It's the only religion in the world that puts these two things together like that. And the only hope of the world is when those two things come together. Because Calvary is judgment as well as redemption. And there is no redemption where there is not judgment. And in our world, there is no judgment where there is not potential redemption except ultimately in the last day. The only place in the scripture where you'll get a line like, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. The only place you'll find is on the last page of scripture. Because God does not want there to be any separation. Now in marriage, what do you get? It's the one place where a person sees a total commitment of one person to another. Friendships are partial. Family relationships are limited. But marriage is one man for one woman, one woman for one man in total. It's exclusive. And it's permanent.
Now that's God's plan. Now why did God put it together? Because that's the relationship he wants with me. He wants uh, a relationship that's all-consuming. Love the Lord your God with all. There it is, object. Love him exclusively. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And permanently. Without cessation. Forever. Now he's built these analogies into our lives. I remember a friend of mine after I preached that in chapel here one day said to me, I'm not married, what about me? I said, well, you don't have to worry about the symbols. You can go straight to the reality. Because the reality is not my family with Wade Hampton, Kenlaw, and Sally Burney, Kenlaw. The important thing is that thing that gets that, you notice in the hymn this morning, what a line, indubitable seal. <laughs> when the Spirit comes and witnesses to our hearts that we're God's children, we can look up and say, Father, Father. That's the reality that the earthly pattern points to. And marriage is simply an earthly symbol that points to because Elsie's relationship to me and mine will differ when we meet God. We will no longer be married to each other. We will both be the bride of Christ. And my maleness will be lost in the role of the bride. It's interesting how those things get reversed in time and eternity, isn't it? But nevertheless, our world is not an alien world to the message that we made. God made it so there would be something a sense of compatibility when it comes. I was reminded of this uh, last night, talking with uh, the Shibuyas. They were telling me that they both grew up as Buddhists. And Shizuko said that she became a Christian, then she, her husband followed, and she said, I prayed for my mother. And not too long ago, she was 92 years of age, and she was saying, is it possible for her to become a Christian, a lifetime Buddhist? And I suspect part of the thinking was, you see, Christianity is alien to a 92-year-old woman who's been a Buddhist all her life. But she called a pastor who could speak Japanese. And he went in and looked at this 92-year-old woman and told the story of Jesus and the cross. Then he repeated it. <laughs> the mother looked up and he repeated it a third time. <laughs> and then he said, would you like for me to pray? And she said, yes. And he prayed for her to receive Christ. And when he finished, she shocked them all by saying, amen. <laughs> now, I may not have told that exactly right, but that's the basic thrust of it. The word was not an alien word to a 92-year-old Buddhist. The word which we have is not an alien word. They may fight it, but they're fighting exactly what they're made for. Now that has very interesting implications evangelistically. You know, it's very easy for those of us who are academics, to say, you've got to teach people, instruct them before they'll be ready to make a decision. There was a British layman 
who went to Japan early in this century who had a basic conviction that there was enough compatibility between the God who made his world and the people in it who don't know him that if people had never heard the name of Christ before in one service, they could be saved, be born again, become self-conscious Christians. His name was Paget Wilkes. And he uh, did an amazing work in Japan. And what he drilled into every one of his evangelists was, in every service, there is the potential if the gospel is preached properly, and if the anointing of the Spirit is there, it's possible in an audience that has never heard the name before in that first service for a person to become a Christian. And they were amazingly effective and successful. Because, you see, he's the creator. He made us for himself. And those people around you that are pagan, he made them for himself. And there is some compatibility, even in their, maybe their hostility. But it is not an alien message that we get. Now, the second thing is, there is that asset that we have in the fact that he made us, but there is also that asset that we don't work alone. He is at work. Jesus said, I'm leaving you, but I won't leave you alone. I'll send the comforter. I'll send the Holy Spirit. You go through the Old Testament, you will find the activity of the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament. And do you know that he's everywhere in his world and he's at work? You really can't get rid of him. And you can't get rid of his witness. And he works in the most uh, remarkable way. I had the privilege of going to Moscow, Russia about eight weeks ago, to do the commencement address for the first graduating class of the OMS seminary in Moscow. Moscow. Never dreamed, you know, that would ever happen to me. I felt very strange walking around Red Square because there was Lenin's mausoleum, you know, that I've seen on TV again and again with Khrushchev standing there, Bulganin, Brezhnev, and Gorbachev, you know, there. And I was very interested. Do you know how you get into the Red Square? You go through Trinity Gate. And do you know how you get into the Kremlin? You go through Redeemer Gate. And if you come out of the Kremlin, do you know what's facing you? St. Basil's Cathedral. And there are those five onion shaped domes, the central one for Jesus, the one over here for Matthew, this one for Mark, this one for Luke, and this one for John. And on the top of every one of them, a metal pennant, and in the middle of it, a cross cut out. And Stalin, every time he ever walked out of his offices, had the witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus. He does not leave his world without its witness. I remember hearing an interview with Leonard Bernstein. He was getting ready to conduct the Messiah for NBC. And they asked him about it. Well, he says, no question, it's the greatest piece of music ever written. 
And he said, in the greatest part of this greatest piece of music is the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> Leonard was a Jew. I asked a graduate student at the University of Kentucky, we were having in our home, what are you studying this semester? Well, she said, we're reading Bunyan, Milton, and Dante. <laughs> I said, are your professors Christians? Oh, no. <laughs> Not a one of them. <laughs> Can you feature a non-Christian <laughs> teaching Pilgrim's Progress or Grace Abounding? Or uh, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained? Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven? God has his witness in our world. We have great assets. And anywhere you are, if you've got eyes to see like Jesus had, you'll find there is something there. But more than that, there's the presence of the Spirit and He is at work. And the interesting thing is you never get there first. He's always ahead of you. Because He cares more about them than you do. And if you have any concern, you got it from Him. And so He's there. He's there at work. So when He says, I send you into the world, in my place, he doesn't send us on our own and helpless. We go to work with him. And you know, the great problem is too many of us work for him instead of with him. I think of conversation that may have happened between Sarah and Abraham. When Sarah said, Abe, ten years ago you told everybody in this country we were going to have a child, a son. You put God on an awful spot. Everybody's been watching. No child. I'm 75 and you're 85. Don't you think we ought to help God out? And do you know everything they did was according to Babylonian law and custom and was proper. There's not a thing in that story that they did counter to the best ethical, moral, cultural patterns of the Hammurabi's code. And I suspect the clincher was when Sarah said, by the way, when he told you you were going to have a son, did he ever mention me? And Abe said, well, I haven't thought about that, but I don't believe he did. Well, that makes it very clear. Take Hagar and you can have a a child by her. And according to Babylonian law, the child who wouldn't belong to Hagar, the child would belong to Sarah. And do you know Abraham got through Hagar everything that he got through Sarah except for Jesus. And when we work for him, that's what we get. But when we work with him, it's a different matter. There's a potential for the redemption of the world when we work with him. That's the reason I believe I ought to get the static outside of, out of me. So that I can sense him, hear his voice, know what he's doing, where he's working. And if there's any self-interest left that I have not surrendered to him, They'll be static, and it will interfere with the hearing. But if I let him crucify, 
that self-interest within me and say, Lord, I want to hear you. I want to know what you're doing. I don't want to spend my life on my stuff. Even the best that I can think or the best that I can do. I want to be a part of what you're doing. Somewhere other than the biblical picture, the norm is that the bride is a part of her husband's work. And so you find at the end here, the spirit and the bride say, come. That's who we are. We're married to him. And he gave his life to redeem a world. And we go out into the world saying, will you come? And as we witness, there's another and a greater who witnesses with us. And so, go. Go enjoy. You may be hesitant. You may be afraid. But that's all right. Just stick your neck out. Stick your toe in the water. And start moving. And you'll find you're not alone. He's with you. And he will do his work.